You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. everyone. Thanks for tuning in to episode 213 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, at the end of the last show, the first shots of the Battle of Perryville had just been fired. And so on Wednesday, October 8th, 1862, near Perryville, Kentucky, the federal soldiers of Don Carlos Buell's Army of the Ohio would fight with Braxton Bragg's Confederate troops to decide the fate of the Bluegrass State. The Army of the Ohio had left Louisville on October 1st, and Buell had sent a sizable force consisting of a reinforced division from McCook's 1st Corps toward the state capital of Frankfort while the rest of the army, about 55,000 men, marched towards Bardstown. When the Confederates evacuated Bardstown, Buell pursued them, with Gilbert's Third Corps taking the direct road to Perryville, McCook's Corps on the left, and Crittenden's Second Corps to the right. Since the Army of the Ohio would have stretched for an unwieldy ten miles if strung out on a single road, Buell, by having the columns march on separate roads, increased the army's speed, and also enlarged the area in which the hot and thirsty Federals could find water in the drought-stricken Kentucky countryside. The use of multiple columns increased the Army of the Ohio's speed, but the situation, along with poor staff work, also made coordination more difficult, as evidenced by a note that McCook wrote to George Thomas on October 5th, in which he confessed himself, quote, in blissful ignorance concerning the movements of the rest of the army. Spoiler alert, but in the upcoming battle, the breakdown in communications would result in two of the three federal corps playing little or no part in the fighting. On the march from Louisville to Bardstown, and then during the subsequent pursuit of the withdrawing Confederates that led to the Battle of Perryville, thousands of new Union soldiers found it difficult to keep up with the rest of the army. The Green Troops hadn't yet become accustomed to the hardships and difficulties of marching and campaigning. But even the seasoned veterans found the lack of water a real test. As we've mentioned before, a severe drought affected Kentucky through the summer and fall of 1862, and so the Federals' pursuit of the rebels was characterized by unbearable thirst, excessive heat, and clouds of dust that billowed up from the roads as the hot, thirsty men marched along. As the Army of the Ohio closed in on the withdrawing Confederates, the frequency and intensity of contacts between the two opposing forces increased. 
By October 7th, the skirmishing between the lead units of Gilbert's Third Corps and the Rebel Rear Guard was almost constant, and to Buell, a full-scale clash seemed imminent. At 7 p.m. that night, therefore, he sent out orders to bring up the two flanking corps for what he anticipated would be a major battle the next day. That evening, Gilbert's Third Corps began to deploy into lines of battle several miles west of Perryville. To George Thomas, who at that time was at Crittenden's headquarters, Buell gave instructions to move the Second Corps several miles forward until it was aligned with the right flank of Gilbert's line. McCook was ordered to bring up his corps on Gilbert's left. Both movements were to begin at 3 a.m. on the morning of October 8th. If everything went as planned, all three Union Corps would be in line by 7 a.m., ready to attack. When the Confederates had abandoned Bardstown and headed east on October 4th, Polk's wing of the Rebel Army and Hardy's wing had each taken separate roads. Meanwhile, as y'all recall, on that same day up in Frankfurt, Bragg and Kirby Smith were engaged in a bit of play-acting as they took part in the ceremony to install a new governor of Confederate Kentucky. But the federal column that Buell had sent toward Frankfurt arrived there later that same day, and the rebel generals and their puppet governor were forced to, quote, skedaddle, as Kirby Smith admitted. So on October 4th, Polk and Hardy abandoned Bardstown, and Bragg and Kirby Smith had to flee from Frankfurt in unseemly haste. With the Federal Army unexpectedly on the move, Bragg scrambled to find a place to make a stand and offer battle. He ultimately settled on Harrodsburg, and therefore issued orders that would concentrate his own army and Kirby Smith's troops at that place. When Bragg had left his army at Bardstown to go off to Lexington and Frankfurt, he'd left Polk and Hardy to look after things. After abandoning Bardstown, Polk and Hardy were chased eastward by Buell's Federals. Hardy's column had been closely pressed by Gilbert's Yankees, and now Hardy's two divisions had been run to ground at Perryville. If Hardy was going to continue on to Harrodsburg, he was first going to need some help in shaking off the pursuing Federals. When Bragg was informed about Hardy's situation, he instructed Polk to take Cheatham's division from his wing of the army to Perryville. The next day, October 8th, the Confederates at Perryville were to attack the Federals and give them a bloody nose so that Hardy could gain some breathing space and would be able to continue the withdrawal to Harrodsburg, where Bragg still expected to fight the climactic battle of the campaign. And so, as the sun went down on the evening of October 7th, the Federals of Gilbert's Corps were deploying into line of battle several miles west of Perryville, and Buell, who expected a major battle the next day, had issued orders to bring up his other two corps during the night. Buell expected that his army's attack would begin at 7 a.m. the next morning. So, the long and the short of it is that Buell correctly expected to fight a major battle at Perryville on October 8th, while Braxton Bragg mistakenly thought that the fighting at Perryville on the 8th would be little more than a glorified rear-guard action designed to give Hardy some elbow room so that he could continue withdrawing to Harrodsburg. 
and so both Buell and Bragg expected to strike a successful offensive blow at Perryville in the morning. Buell imagined his big attack would destroy that part of the rebel army that he'd caught, while Bragg just wanted to knock back the federal column that had run Hardy to ground. Exactly. As darkness fell on the evening of October 7th, Hardy had deployed his wings two divisions at Perryville, with Simon Bolivar Buckner's division to the west of town and Patton Anderson's to the northwest. Benjamin Cheatham's division from Polk's wing stopped and camped north of Perryville along the Harrodsburg Pike. Polk arrived during the night and, as senior officer, assumed command of the 16,000 or so Confederates in and around Perryville. As you guys will recall, at the end of the last episode, we said that the first shots of the Battle of Perryville had been fired that night when part of Phil Sheridan's 11th Division from Gilbert's 3rd Corps had pushed forward at 3 a.m. and in the darkness successfully captured Doctor's Creek and the hill beyond, Peter's Hill, from some Arkansans from Simon Bolivar Buckner's division. The Arkansans, commanded by St. John Little, regrouped and started some lively skirmishing with the Yankees, who were led by Dan McCook, to keep the Blue Jackets from advancing beyond Peters Hill. Sheridan sent the rest of McCook's brigade forward, and by sunrise, Little's rebels and McCook's Federals were blazing away at each other from lines about 400 yards apart. But while Sheridan had pushed forward and successfully captured Doctor's Creek and Peters Hill, too, By 7 o'clock that morning, it was evident that nothing else had gone according to plan for the Yankees. Buell's orders for the 2nd Corps crossed paths with a message from Thomas explaining that he had moved Crittenden's men two and a half miles from where they were supposed to camp in order to find some water. Because of that, Buell's order didn't reach George Thomas until 3 a.m., which was the hour Crittenden's 2nd Corps was supposed to be put into motion to come up on Gilbert's right. And McCook, who was supposed to come up on Gilbert's left, didn't receive his orders from Buell until about 3 a.m., so he didn't get his two First Corps divisions on the road until 5 o'clock. James Jackson's inexperienced 10th Division had been slated to lead the Corps' march that day, but now, with fighting likely, McCook decided to put Lovell Rousseau's veteran 3rd Division at the head of the column. Despite McCook's best intentions, Jackson's greenhorns still managed to disrupt the Corps' order of march when they entered the road after only two of Rousseau's three brigades had passed, thus cutting off Colonel John Starkweather's 28th Brigade, which had to wait and bring up the rear of the column. This, dear listeners, will become important shortly, so consider this a bit of foreshadowing. Okay. Well, at Buell's headquarters, when the news arrived that the two flanking corps hadn't reached their places in time to kick off the federal attack at 7 a.m., it was assumed that the upcoming battle with the rebels at Perryville would be postponed at least one more day. Buell himself later admitted that after he received word that McCook and Crittenden had failed to move into position in time, he, quote, no longer anticipated a battle that day, end quote. 
But while Buell assumed there would be no battle that day and continued to nurse his sore foot at headquarters, and while the troops of the 1st and 2nd Corps were belatedly moving forward, the men of Gilbert's 3rd Corps were already hotly engaged with the enemy. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We mentioned a few minutes ago that St. John Little's Brigade of Arkansans was engaged in a firefight attempting to keep the Brigade of Yankees that had captured Doctors Creek and Peters Hill from advancing any further. But Phil Sheridan was determined to press his advantage, and he brought up his other two brigades under Lieutenant Colonel Bernard Labold and Colonel Nicholas Grusel to support Dan McCook. Grusel was aware that his rookie, 24th Wisconsin, was participating in its first battle, so he told the men that the 24th would start in reserve, but they might be needed to fight. I shall expect you to do it, he said. From what I have seen of you, I know you will do your duty. The 24th Wisconsin did, in fact, participate in the fighting here along with the rest of Grusel's men, but suffered only one man killed in the action. The regiment's 17-year-old adjutant, Lieutenant Arthur MacArthur, quickly made a name for himself for his bravery and steady example during the engagement. It was the start of an illustrious military career for the officer, whose son, Douglas MacArthur, would later earn some fame of his own. Having lost the precious water source of Doctors Creek and also Peters Hill, Little tried to counterattack with the 5th and 7th Arkansas. Little reported that, quote, The attempt was promptly and cheerfully made, but the force of the enemy had been increased so largely and suddenly as to force back both lines. As the Confederates withdrew after their failed counterattack, dismounted Federal cavalry moved in to press them from the northwest but the troopers from Michigan and Pennsylvania quickly drew fire from the rebel infantry and cannon on Bottom Hill and were pinned down. 
At this juncture, Sheridan committed Leibolt's veteran, 2nd and 15th Missouri. Both regiments were made up of Germans from St. Louis. Supported by the 44th Illinois, the Missourians formed up in some woods atop Peters Hill and then attacked toward the left of St. John Little's line across the way. This assault, combined with the fire of Sheridan's divisional artillery on Peters Hill, proved to be too much for the Arkansans. At 10 a.m., Simon Bolivar Buckner ordered Little to fall back to Perryville, and Sheridan's Federals took possession of Bottom Hill. Shortly after Sheridan, on his own initiative, captured Bottom Hill, which was the last natural obstacle before Perryville itself, Gilbert rode onto the scene. Gilbert, by his attitude and conduct, had been irritating and upsetting the soldiers and officers of his corps since he took command, and now, quite concerned that his troops were forward of Peter's Hill, in his usual tactless way, he let his displeasure be known. As he later said, quote, On inquiry, it was discovered that this movement was in consequence of some misunderstanding of orders. General Sheridan was directed to recall Leibolt's brigade, resume his position on Peter's Hill, and limit itself to, his dis- to its defense until a general advance to attack and force should be ordered. Obeying Gilbert's orders, Sheridan reluctantly abandoned Bottom Hill and fell back to Peter's Hill, where his men were joined by Mitchell's 9th Division, which had moved up in support. The other 3rd Corps Division, Chef's 1st Division, stayed in the rear near Doctor's Creek. And so shortly after 10 o'clock, that is, after Sheridan had pulled back to Peter's Hill, an uneasy quiet settled over the battlefield. The sharp fighting at Peters Hill and Bottom Hill, just to the west of town, had convinced both Hardee and Polk that large numbers of Yankees were on the field, and that Bragg's plan for an attack on the Federals, followed by a rebel withdrawal from the scene, was impractical. Meanwhile, Cheatham's division arrived during the morning and was posted to the north of town along the Harrodsburg Pike. Wharton's cavalry scouted the Mackville Road area to the northwest, while Wheeler's horsemen watched the Lebanon Pike to the southwest. Polk later explained how, quote, At a meeting of general officers, it was resolved, in view of the great disparity in our forces, to await the movements of the enemy and to be guided by events as they were developed, end quote. In other words, Polk and Hardy decided that Bragg's orders for a Confederate attack no longer fit with the reality of the situation at Perryville, so they decided to sit tight and adopt a wait-and-see attitude. The wisdom of that decision was confirmed when blue columns were observed approaching along the Mackville Road and the Lebanon Pike. This was McCook's First Corps coming down the Mackville Road by 10 a.m., and Crittenden's 2nd Corps, which was nearing Perryville by 11.30 that morning. And so by noon on October 8th, 55,000 Union troops stood within five miles of Perryville, while Polk and Hardy only had a little over 16,000 Confederates on hand. But as we said before, Buell's timetable had been hopelessly spoiled, so he postponed the Army of the Ohio's attack until dawn on Thursday, October 9th. Both McCook and Crittenden, therefore, were simply ordered to deploy on Gilbert's flanks and scout the ground to their fronts. South of Perryville, on Gilbert's right, 
Crittenden's 20,000 men were strung out in a rough line of battle behind a screen of cavalry, which was commanded by yet another of the fighting McCooks, Edward, who was cousin to Alexander and Dan. Edward McCook's horsemen made contact with Wheeler's rebel cavalry, but didn't press an attack. For his part, Wheeler was content to watch and wait. Northwest of Perryville, on Gilbert's left, Alexander McCook brought his 13,000 men in two divisions onto the field by way of the Macville Road. The first corps column was a little mixed up, as we mentioned before. In the lead was Rousseau's 3rd Division, but only two of its brigades, led by Colonels William Little and Leonard Harris, were in their proper place because James Jackson's 10th Division had jumped the gun and piled onto the road before Rousseau's last brigade, commanded by John Starkweather, could get into line. That meant Starkweather's men now marched at the back of the column with the Corps' supply wagons and ordnance train. As McCook's troops approached Perryville that morning, they heard the sound of the fighting at Peters Hill at a distance. Many of the 21st Wisconsin's rookies thought the sound came from a thunderstorm, but Sergeant John Otto, a veteran of the Prussian Army, knew better. He later wrote, I did know the meaning of it all, but I kept my peace. Soon enough, the men would realize the real cause. With skirmishers in front, Rousseau's lead brigades pressed eastward past where the Benton Road intersected the Mackville Road at a spot known as the Dixville Crossroads. As the Union infantry passed a farmhouse near the intersection owned by John C. Russell, Alexander McCook selected the place for his headquarters. Russell, a Unionist, willingly opened his house to the general and his staff. Rousseau's lead brigades advanced past the Dixville crossroads until a mile eastward they finally came to a halt atop a ridge, now known as Loomis Heights, which was about two miles northwest of Perryville. Doctor's Creek lay beyond the ridge's eastern face, and just to the southeast stood the barn and house of H.P. Bottom. Little deployed his Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana troops astride the Macville Road overlooking the creek and the Bottom House, while Harris took his Indiana, Ohio, and Wisconsin regiments north to cover Little's left. The 10th and 33rd Ohio moved forward of the battle line as skirmishers. Jackson's all-rookie 10th Division arrived shortly after Rousseau had placed his troops. Jackson's men were not only tired and thirsty, like everyone else, but were also hungry since Jackson hadn't given them time to prepare breakfast before starting the march. At any rate, Jackson left George Webster's brigade at the crossroads to serve as the Corps' reserve, and he took William Terrell's 3,000 men and eight cannon north along the Benton Road to a hill known as Open Knob, which covered Harris's left flank and offered a good view of the surrounding area. And so by noon, north of Gilbert's 3rd Corps troops, four of the five 1st Corps brigades were in place, and the 5th Starkweather's men were coming up. About 10 a.m., as St. John Little broke off contact at Bottom Hill with his Arkansans, and as McCook's Federal First Corps came into view northwest of Perryville, Braxton Bragg rode onto the scene, having come from Harrodsburg to personally find out what was going on at Perryville. 
He was angry to find that his planned attack for October 8th wasn't even then in progress. Bragg also refused to believe that the major part of Buell's army was present or approaching the town. Overruling objections by Polk and Hardee, Bragg ordered an immediate assault against the most accessible part of the Yankee force across the way, that is, against McCook's First Corps, which had just deployed two miles northwest of town astride the Mackville Road. Bragg planned to use most of the rebel troops on hand to attack McCook, while leaving only Colonel Samuel Powell's troops from Patton Anderson's division, and Preston Smith's Tennesseans from from Cheatham's division, and Wheeler's cavalry in and around Perryville. Bragg was confident those 3,500 Confederates were sufficient to keep an eye on the rest of the Federals. What Bragg didn't know, of course, or refused to believe, is that those other Federals were Gilbert's Third Corps and Crittenden's II Corps, and they numbered 42,000 men. While those 3,500 rebels kept an eye on 42,000 Yankees, the remaining 13,000 Confederates would attack McCook's 13,000 Federals northwest of Perryville. The rebel units would attack in echelon, that is, in stair-step fashion from north to south, one unit after another, so that the pressure against the Yankee line would gradually build until it reached the breaking point. The Dixville Crossroads would be a key objective for the rebel assault, since if that spot was captured, the Federal's line of retreat would be cut off. Bragg set 2 p.m. that afternoon as the start time for the attack. The Confederates discovered that getting to McCook's Federals wouldn't be all that easy, since the Chaplin River ran parallel to the Confederate front and would have to be crossed to get at the Yankees. The drought made the river easily fordable by infantry, but wagons and artillery still needed roads to cross. Buckner's division followed the Mackville Road one mile northwest and halted just out of sight of Little's Federals. Anderson's detached brigades in the center moved by way of farm lanes and cross-country until they were opposite Harris's Federals. Cheatham's men had the toughest path to negotiate by way of narrow Dug Road and into a 270-degree turn in the river called Walker's Bend. Wharton's rebel cavalry scouted the area but reported only the presence of Harris's and Little's brigades of Federals. Federal cannon on Loomis Heights soon caused the Confederate horsemen to seek cover, and rebel artillery began to duel with their Yankee counterparts across the way. As Cheatham's Confederates moved into position, they ran into skirmishers from the 33rd Ohio along the banks of the Chaplain. The rebels deployed into line and pushed the Federals back. One of the Ohioans later described the clash, saying, quote, Our regiment was set out on the left to prevent a surprise from that direction. We had not been there long when a regiment of cavalry made its appearance on our front and a regiment of infantry on our left. We fired one round, killed their flag-bearer and a few other of their men, and then we retreated back to our line, the rebels following close to our heels. As the 33rd Ohio rallied and fell back toward Harris's main line, nobody saw the regiment's colonel, Oscar Moore, fall wounded. The 33rd's color-bearer suffered the same fate, and both men and the flag were captured by the advancing Confederates. 
As the appointed hour of 2 p.m. approached, Cheatham deployed his 6,000 men. He commanded three brigades under Brigadier Generals George Manny, Alexander P. Stewart, and Daniel Donaldson. Every regiment of the division was from Tennessee, except for the rookie 41st Georgia, which had somehow got thrown in with the rough-and-tumble veterans from the volunteer state. Based on the rebel cavalry scouting, Cheatham believed his entire division stood beyond the Federal's left flank, so he decided to strike with Donaldson's troops and use his remaining brigades as a reserve to exploit any success. Cheatham's Confederates moved up from Walker's Bend to their assigned positions, using the terrain and the woods for cover and concealment. Rebel artillery continued to shell Loomis Heights. Donaldson deployed his Tennesseans, aware that since the Confederate assault would be made in echelon from north to south, the start of the battle hinged on his attack. At two o'clock, all was ready, so he gave the word for his men to advance. And so, after a midday lull following the early action at Peters Hill and Bottom Hill, the Battle of Perryville was about to start up again in earnest, due to Braxton Bragg's obstinacy. Little did Daniel Donaldson know that his order to advance at 2 p.m. was starting five hours of sustained, intense combat that would push both Confederates and Federals to their limits. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Civil War at Perryville, Battling for the Bluegrass State, by Christopher L. Kolakowski. Kolakowski's book is part of the History Press's Civil War Sesquicentennial series, and we've already recommended a number of books from that series, and this one is eminently worthy of joining those others. So that's The Civil War at Perryville, Battling for the Bluegrass State by Christopher L. Kolakowski. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap things up for this show, we want to give a quick but heartfelt thank you to Leo and Milt for becoming the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade this week. And many thanks to Russ M. for his very generous donation to the podcast this past week. Yep, thanks, Russ. And thanks to all of you guys for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we continue with the story of the Battle of Perryville. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.